I'm Ryan Miller, Crops Extension Educator. Earlier this morning, we recorded an episode of the Strategic Farming Field Notes program. Strategic Farming Field Notes is a weekly program addressing current crop production topics. A live webinar is hosted at 8 a.m. on Wednesdays throughout the cropping season. During the live webinar, participants can join in the discussion and get questions answered. An audio recording of the live program is released following the webinar via podcast platforms. Thanks, and remember to tune in weekly for a discussion on current cropping and crop management topics. So again, welcome today. And this uh, podcast is uh, from the University of Minnesota Extension. We're glad you joined us today. Uh, this is kind of talking a little bit more about what we're going to do in, you know, kind of about the end of May and with hay issues and early season insects that are coming up. Uh, I'm Anthony Hansen, Regional Extension Educator, and today we'll also have Bruce Potter, our um, IPM specialist. So we're going to both be covering a little bit what's going on, especially in the IPM world of insects today. So I think with that, Bruce, I'm going to turn it over to you uh, initially for some of the first questions coming up. I know I've been getting asked a lot about what's going on in alfalfa, what to get ready for, especially with alfalfa weevil. Uh, so just to kind of go, get off that here, what have you been hearing about alfalfa issues coming up or what's kind of on your horizon initially for what you're keeping an eye out for in the fields right now? Well, basically it's alfalfa weevil. We still have, it looks like we've still got adults moving into the field. Uh, we've got, uh, as of yesterday, a couple days ago, we had a lot of uh, neonate or newly hatched larvae out there. Some older larvae, maybe by the end of the week, we'll have some second instar larvae. <clears throat> but it looks like that, you know, like typical, that that hatch is going to be spread out. Um, so I think the alfalfa weevil are the thing people need to be most uh, worried about right now. I did see my first potato leaf hopper of the season. Uh, so uh, they've made it up here. Uh, nothing to be too excited about yet, but uh, they've made it up. And then uh, pea aphids uh, seem to be the, the biggest uh, insect out there, but again, uh, not anything close to economic threshold levels. Yeah, before we get any deeper, I should also mention thanks to our sponsors as well, the Minnesota Soybean Research Promotion Council and the Minnesota Corn Research and Promotion Councils. Um, they're funding a bit to help support this program, and it's been very generous for that. Uh, so Bruce, kind of covering those insects a little bit, obviously alfalfa weevil, I think we'll get into in a little bit later here, but uh, how about some of the other ones, say like pea aphid, for instance, some folks maybe aren't as familiar with that one. Uh, other folks, they've seen higher numbers of it sometimes. So uh, what do you kind of keep an eye out for with that one in terms of timing and uh, what it's doing out in the fields? Well, it, it, they tend to cause the most damage, and it's actually, I think, kind of rare that you have yield loss from them in, in Minnesota, but tend to be more problems when it's uh, uh, dry out, um, you know, alfalfa is under moisture stress. Um, there's a lot of different thresholds for them, but, uh, you know, back then when I was in <clears throat> grad school many, many years ago, um, you know, you know, one of the thresholds we kind of used was a quarter cup of aphids per sweep. So uh, you can tolerate some pretty high populations out there. And I think you, where we've been getting into trouble lately is, is you know, after we're spraying alfalfa weevils, that sort of thing, um, or potato, potato leaf hoppers, uh, you got to really be aware of uh, flaring the pea aphids. Um, there's some little bit of concern that there may be some resistance to pyrethroids with that insect as well. So um, no good turn uh, uh, goes, no, uh, anyhow, anyhow do, trying to do something uh, sometimes lead to unexpected, leads to unexpected uh, events. 
Yeah, I think that pyrethroid resistance, that's a recurring theme we seem to be dealing with um, moving over to alfalfa weevil too. Last year, I know I had plenty of reports in West Central Minnesota, and I think you had a few down your area too, Southwest Minnesota, where folks were saying, you know, it seemed like their pyrethroids just weren't working for alfalfa weevil. Um, you know, I, I didn't quite get enough samples I could ship off to get that confirmed, but you know, we're suspecting that it looks like there's pyrethroid resistance out there. So what options do we have for insecticides with alfalfa weevil that are left um, that kind of stand out to you, or what challenges are we facing there? Well, I think the, the, the challenge we're facing is, is uh, the, you know, this high intense alfalfa production system. Uh, some guys, this is not new with alfalfa weevil or pea aphids. This has been going on for several years off and on. But uh, some guys not only got onto a cutting schedule, but they got onto a spray schedule, um, put a lot of insecticides on, um, you know, and Sometimes they'd spray, you'd come back multiple times with a pyrethroid, sometimes at lower rates. So, um, you know, the the problems aren't unexpected. Um, we've got a few options. We've lost chlorpyrifos, which is going to hurt. But we've also, uh, you know, we've picked up steward. That That's an option. Uh, some of the mixes are options. And hopefully uh, there's some things in the in in the background that, that may help us. But but right now we're fairly limited. Yeah, I'm looking at um, one of the tables we produced in the past. Uh, we will have a new Minnesota crop news coming out this week from the looks of it. Um, but there are past articles that have some of these insecticide tables in there. Um, and yeah, without pyrethroids, when we're rotating group numbers for insecticides, uh, right now it's really only two main groups that are left. You have some of the organophosphates and then that steward product, that's a group 22. Um, between those, um, it kind of seems like limited options. There are new updates coming out in other parts of the country, and they're saying that you should try to rotate between a different group number every three years. Well, if you have resistance to pyrethroids or a history of um, failures in your field, they're recommending you know, stay away from those. You only have two options left. So what kind of options do growers have in those situations where we're saying we're kind of in dire straits with the insecticides? Um, and you have to try to figure out some way to manage shelf health weevil out there with limited insecticide options. Well, I think that's why, uh, you know, this whole concept of IPM and economic thresholds are important in spring. You know, every field doesn't need uh, alfalfa weevil treatment every year, that sort of thing. So um, if you're doing your scouting and, and uh, paying attention to uh, what kind of populations you have out there, not treating insects that you don't need to treat, that's going to help a little bit limp us through this until uh, until some new things come up, come along. Have you heard much about uh, how well planting not just pure stands of alfalfa, whether it's orchard grass or other grasses in there? Um, I've seen some literature saying how that reduces alfalfa weevil numbers. Um, have you heard more about uh, just how much that helps potentially, or no, not I, in some cases? No, I, no, I haven't. Uh, I haven't looked at that literature at all. So um, I would I would assume it would you know helped if for no other reason then there's less uh, plant, alfalfa plants per unit area there to support uh, support the weevils. Yeah, I imagine too, it, it's going to vary. Um, you know, I've had calls from more dairy producers or consultants helping those folks out and that's, you know, high production they want you, oftentimes just pure alfalfa. If it's say beef producers, other livestock, they're a little less picky and, you know, maybe that's where kind of showing these trends that uh, dairy is kind of the challenge right now for those folks because they're a little more um, stringent on what they're looking for. 
Right. I've had other calls too. Uh, one of the other insecticides I haven't mentioned yet uh, is spinosad. And that one is used oftentimes more by organic growers. I've been getting questions about that as well too. Um, you know, it sounds like it's a pretty expensive product though too. And you know, maybe variable efficacy on that one. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that product? Or that's kind of the yeah. only potential third option out there that I've been able to see. Yeah, I haven't I haven't tested it on alfalfa weevils and uh but it, and it's more, you know, I'm more familiar with it as a lepidopterin product. Uh so I don't know. I mean, it's you know, there's not a lot of options out there for them. So um I think in their case, um their their best defense is going to we're going to have to come up with some better cutting management strategies for them. Yeah. Um on that note from that last call I had I think they're saying it was about 35 to 40 dollars an acre it was going to cost to try to treat with that. So that's why it definitely sounds like a challenge for those folks. Yeah. So with uh mowing schedules and we talk about this a lot for alfalfa weevil if you mow early uh sometimes before these treatment thresholds so that can kind of count as your insecticide treatment sometimes and help you out reduce numbers. Um, how well does that work? And kind of when should growers be trying to time that um, you know, early mowing uh, versus what issues could come up afterwards in terms of you know issues with regrowth in the second crop? Well, I mean, it depends on what you're trying to, you know, what you're, what you're planning to use that alfalfa for. Um, so if you're, uh, a lot of the dairy guys are cutting that stuff early, um, like right now in southwest Minnesota and southern Minnesota, some of that alpha, alfalfa probably could be cut if you're in a, a multiple high number of cuttings per year. Um, and in this case, in this year, that's probably a little bit on the early side because I don't think you're going to impact the beetles as much as you will, the weevils as much as you will, the larvae. Um, as far as I can tell, we've still even got weevils moving into the field, laying eggs, that sort of thing. So. Um, then the other side of it is it's trying to find that happy medium because if you wait too long, then you've got uh, too many larvae out there, too many under the windrows, and you end up with problems there. So um, I think there, I think we probably could do, uh, we probably need some work, a little bit more work on on how to time these things, and especially in the light of uh, potential resistance to insecticides. And that's a good point from earlier. You mentioned the adults moving to the fields, and those aren't actually what we treat for. We're not really counting those. It's more the larvae and eggs hatching. And um, some of the degree day models that are out there, they're showing that uh, egg lay should be happening just around now in central Minnesota, probably got maybe just some larvae hatching in southern Minnesota. So yeah, that's kind of a good point that the timing is, you know, kind of just that point where things are starting to show up in the field for larvae, at least that we're looking at. But that's kind of yeah. the other prong of the question here is, you know, some of these larvae seem like they're hanging around in fields a lot longer in some areas than people are used to. And we've talked about different strains of alfalfa weevil in the past. Uh, some sounds like they've been in southern Minnesota for quite a while. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, what might be happening with those different strains there? Well, there's two there's two biotypes uh, in, in Minnesota or in, in, in northern so, um, alfalfa areas. Anyhow, um, uh, uh, an eastern strain and a western strain. Uh, they differ in, in when they lay eggs. One will lay some eggs in the fall, uh, and if you have a mild winter, those eggs will survive. Uh, they differ in when they move into the field, that sort of thing. And so that's going to de you know, determine when those weevils are out there relative to first, first and second cutting. Um, and if you've got a mix, then it confounds things even more. Um, 
in the southern part of the state, uh, back when I started years ago, I think we were still already pre predominantly the, the western strain. And I'm not sure what's going on in, in uh, west central and central, um, if we've got a mix of them. A lot of those degree day models were developed with, with one strain, and, and, and they're, they don't work well for both. Yeah, that's one of the caveats we're putting out now, especially with those degree day models, is just because it was based on just those one um, uh, or that one biotype there, it's looking like this Western strain, would you say about one to two week um, kind of extended season on that one, it seems like. So mm -hmm. it's um, I've seen some fields where they had damage into July 1st. Uh, I couldn't find evidence of weevils out there anymore at that point. But yeah, it's it's definitely an issue where growers are kind of getting surprised by alfalfa weevil here quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So if folks are looking at both first cutting and second cutting potential issues, um, what do you think we need to change besides, you know, trying to mow early if we can? Um, but if you only have one insecticide treatment that you could maybe do in a year, when do you think the most value for that is? Um, trying to balance damage from the larvae and um, trying to protect the crop there. Well, if it was, it, and it's going to depend year to year, and I think that's where we need to you know, we need to uh, look at some uh, some data and and maybe do some research here and that applies to Minnesota. But um, this year in southern Minnesota, I would say that, you know, cutting right now uh, would probably be the thing to do. Cutting early would be the thing to do. And then and then if you had to treat, get on the get on the uh, weevils early and second cutting right away. Don't you know, if the problems, big problems come in if you cut uh, alfalfa and and leave it in the windrow, everything, not only uh, alfalfa weevil, but everything crawls under the windrow. And by the time you get it off the field, it's there's nothing left. So, um, and then in some years or some other areas, you might be better off um, even having to treat that first generation and and knock things back there and and, and rather than, than try to deal with them later on. But again, I'm, it's some, I think it's something that, uh, you know, we, we, we need to look at a little harder. Yeah, um, I think with that, and just a reminder to folks, you can ask questions either on alfalfa that we're talking about here, or in a little bit, we're talking more about what's going on with some other insects out there. Um, otherwise, have you uh, seen just kind of how the crop's looking for alfalfa so far? Any other potential issues um, you've been hearing out there in terms of either insects or other agronomic things? Well, in, in this part of the world here, Lamberton and, you know, along Highway 14, uh, I've, I've learned again that uh, alfalfa can't stand underwater very long and survive. But um, for the most part, where we've had good drainage, it's the crop looks pretty good. Looks like it came through the winter very well. Um, you know, there's a few areas that uh, had some some frost or ponding and frost issues, but in general, the crop looks pretty good right now. Yeah, it's it's funny the difference just a couple hours drive can make here in West Central Minnesota. We haven't had that much rain and we got the pivot starting up on the uh, alfalfa ground there. So I think with that, we can move over to one of the other um, kind of monitoring projects that you work with, especially with uh, moth flights and what's going on there in the spring, especially black cutworm, true armyworm. Um, you've had some pretty high numbers in some traps, haven't you? Yeah, <clears throat> well, it's the same same systems that have brought uh, a lot of rain, have brought uh, some migrating moths in. They tend to drop up uh, you know, they got a pretty good pathway out of the south. They can do some long distance movement uh, on low level jets, uh, you know, 1,500 1, feet up. Uh, they 
they actually the army worms and black cutworms actually try to migrate so they'll they'll actually uh, uh, start flying at dusk they'll pick up these winds and then head north and then get here from texas in in a matter of a couple of days a lot of times they'll be, uh, drop out on the back end of, of thunderstorms uh, that's why you know a lot of times you see both of them associated with uh, in years where you've had a lot of heavy rains um, and and their populations are going to be higher in those areas where uh, where we've had those rains so um, unfortunately this year uh, we've got some pretty high captures it doesn't mean that we're going to have a problem but uh, we definitely have uh, uh, some good moth numbers. Uh, we've had several flights into Minnesota for black cutworms. The earliest were in Martin and Swift County uh, back in mid-April. Um, we've had uh, subsequent flights here and there, and uh, um, the most recent came in these uh, these rains uh, around the 10th, 11th to the 15th. Uh, some of these came in uh, uh, the central, southwest, uh, central minnesota area some of the sugar beet areas got hit pretty hard a trap in renville um on the 13th uh, and 5th, uh, 14th and 15th i think it was had uh 21 over two nights we consider eight over two nights uh you know where we start to get a little bit concerned uh so definitely we've got a lot of moths coming in and uh army worms are the same way i said i've looked at light traps black light traps off and on uh since the late 70s and i managed to set uh i think it was may 12th or uh set my personal record for army worms 193 in one night uh, a lot of the pheromone traps we don't have as extensive of network with the army worms but a lot of those pheromone traps have been picking up um quite a few uh, moths off and on all spring long and the interesting thing, I, you know, kind of depressing actually is, you know, we have a black light trap and a pheromone trap. They're probably about 100 yards apart. We were catching seven in the pheromone trap, and that's when we caught the 193. So uh, I'm not real confident what those pheromone trap numbers mean, but uh, we definitely looks like we pulled in, pulled in quite a few insects. Yeah, no, um, I've seen that with some black light traps too, where you get surprised by what you find in there, but still over 100 moths compared to nine in a pheromone trap. That's pretty wide difference. So in these counties uh, that uh, you're getting these high counts and traps, what should growers be out looking for in terms of timing and you know, what crops are actually the uh, priorities here that these uh, larvae are the larvae might be feeding on out there? Well, the the, the uh, black cutworms have a pretty big host range. Uh, you know, usually we consider the worry about those as pests of corn, and so if you got the timing, so you've got uh, large, uh, large uh, small cutworms and and small corn, uh, they've got an extended period uh, feeding. Those are usually higher risk. Um, as the corn gets bigger, the cutworms will take less plants. As the cutworms get bigger, uh, they don't have as long to feed. But you know, when they come into the area, they're looking for specific uh, places to lay eggs. They like uh, soybean residue. They like low-lying areas. Uh, you know, um, they don't like it underwater, like might have happened this year. But low-lying areas, uh, areas that have early season weed growth, are really attractive to them. So lambs quarters is an example, and we've got a lot of that this this year um, out there. A lot of uh, 
early season weeds and, and delayed planting. Um, so that's that's kind of where to look. Um, and and uh, I think one of the issues we're going to have this year, that same rain that brought cutworms up and, and uh, kind of messed up planting for people, that's going to make scouting a little tough because we've got some poor emergence and uneven emergence. Um, and guys are going to have to, you know, if they see leaf feeding from the cutworms, that's usually their first uh, sign. But uh, if they're seeing leaf feeding, you're going to have to dig around. Uh, they'll tend to be at the border between dry and wet, wet uh, soils. Uh, determine if it's cutworms or not. Uh, you know, actually, one of the main main causes of stand loss might be agronomists looking for cutworms out in <laughs> corn, but uh, it's an important task. Yeah. Um, two questions is one: What kind of time window are we looking at that we should be out there scouting? Kind of when will things roughly wrap up in terms of when maybe the corn isn't as susceptible? And related to that. How are the BT traits working for these lepidopterans? Um, are they effective or are there actually issues with that where it doesn't quite protect as much? We'll take the BT traits first. Um, if you've got an above ground, a hybrid with above ground BT rate uh, traits, you should be protected unless you got a lot of big cutworms moving over uh, uh, onto corn. They might, uh, they might take some plants out before they succumb. Um, armyworms, on the other hand, the only trait that uh, has uh, is labeled for control is the Viptera trait. Um, there's not a lot of uh, hybrids with that at this time. Um, it's increasing. So uh, corn with Viptera is, is more at risk. Armyworms are also, uh, you know, anything that's grass. The, the, unlike the cutworms, armyworms have a pretty wide, uh, narrow host range. It's grasses. And uh, so small grains are also at risk. And when I mentioned the cutworms coming in, uh, armyworms look look for the densest, uh, tallest vet grass vegetation they can find. It's one of the things we worry about with uh, if you've got pretty heavy rye cover crops and you plant corn into that, uh, those are ones fields you have to be watched uh, real carefully. And then as far as when things are going to happen, um, you know, the these early flights, and, and these are going to be in a, uh, all available in a link that's posted at the end, but the early flights, um, we're going to start to see cutworms big enough to cut corn, black cutworms big enough to cut corn by the end of May, last few days of May or so. Uh, the degree day models usually over predict a little bit, so end of May, early June, and these later flights, it's going to be later, it's going to be into mid-June, and then uh, uh, as as the as these cupworms start to pupate, then we're looking at, uh, oh, let's see, uh, probably the 25th, 26th of June um, for these later flights, and then the earlier flights probably mid-June. Mid so um, this is all in, in the uh, newsletters we put out when, when uh, cutting will start, when uh, cutting should finish, and, and uh, gives people an idea when to, to gauge uh, their scouting. So you covered a little bit about uh, rye cover crops, and I know this is one we got a few calls about last year. I had one field out in uh, eastern Stearns County that I saw where, um, you know, we talk about how true armyworm, they prefer their grasses, um, but they can hit soybeans sometimes. I actually saw a soybean field that was decimated. They um, It was too late to replant, and what happened was they had a thick rye cover crop. And it was, it must've been right around the time when those larvae were just laid in stars, nice big ones. They terminated the right cover crop. 
Uh, this is actually going to be part of the topic for next week, uh, cover crop termination. And in that process, all those larvae had left to eat were soybeans out there. So um, kind of folks seem to get surprised by that a little bit sometimes. So what should you be specifically in rye be out there looking for if you are planning your termination for that and you know when to kind of set up an insecticide application and potentially kind of a thick residue with all that rye cover crop well out there. yeah if you're before you terminate i'd run a sweep net out there look for larvae um you know it takes about mo just like cutworms those last instars are where most of the feeding happens in the case of armyworms it's the sixth instar but to get to fifth instar uh it's at least about three weeks after the eggs hatch though it's all it's really spread out for armyworms because the adults will mate multiple times and and uh, lay eggs over probably a week 10 day period something around there um but you know, you know if you if you're going to terminate that crop i'd run at least run a sweep net through there and and uh, make sure that uh, you don't have large larvae and look on the ground as well uh, make sure you don't have any larvae in there. Uh, scout it after you terminate, uh, just to make sure you don't have any any surprises. Uh, you know these large larvae can pretty well eliminate a field over overnight, and and uh, people are surprised. And we're trying really need to catch those our larvae before they're early, before they run out of food and start uh, going over to the neighbors. Uh, you mentioned the soybeans, and they will attack soybeans. But uh, the good news is that probably. Uh, they, it's, they, they probably starve to death if they have to just eat soybeans. So they might be able to finish off, but uh, it's, it's not a good food source for them at all. They might just as easily head to a field next door if they, if, if they could. Yeah, I, I will admit it was pretty daunting to see you know, a whole field um, soybean. There's only just a few green plants across the whole thing. So uh, folks haven't seen major insect damage before. That's one good example. Um, one last question before we wrap things up, or I might have one more, Bruce. Uh, first question is, is there a certain time of day we should be scouting for larvae? And then just to wrap things up, um, what other insect issues should we keep an eye out for in the coming weeks here? Well, I think, uh, you know, both uh, both armyworms and cutworm, uh, cutworms, the adults and the larvae are both nocturnal, at least the larvae, larger larvae are. So if you if you're out there looking in the evening um, or early morning, uh, you have a higher chance to see them up and above the ground. I mentioned the the cutworms; those are going to be below ground uh, most of the time, and and uh, you know that they'll a lot of times go down a row. But if you see a cut or wilted plant or plant with leaf feeding, if you start pulling the crust up or or digging down to soil moisture levels that's usually where you find the larvae they're hard to see but and they tend to curl up but um you know like i said most of them are nocturnal but not everybody wants to be wandering around all night long looking for cutworms and armyworms uh, fall into badger holes and stuff like that yeah so um about two minutes left here any other insects folks should keep an eye out for um, well, I think the the big ones in corn are going to be armyworms and corn rootworms. I'm uh, thinking they had a pretty good winter. Uh, we'll see what uh, what develops. Uh, or, uh, but the corn rootworms are probably the biggest issue in corn right now. Um, soybean aphids. Uh, we'll see what happens there. And it's I think they might get hurt a little bit 
uh, with late soybean planting respect to, with respect to when they hatch and try to move off a of buckthorn. But uh, well, again, that's something we'll have to see. Soybean gall midge, um, we don't know. The populations have been down the last couple of years in Minnesota. So uh, that's actually what I'm going to do later on today is start, uh, we're starting to look at emergence cages for adult emergence. So I think uh, in the alfalfa, it's going to be potato leaf hoppers after we get done with, uh, with uh, weevils. Thank you everyone else for attending uh, University of Minnesota Extension's field notes. And Bruce Potter on today. He's our IPM specialist with University of Minnesota Extension, based out of Lamberton. And for other folks, uh, just glad to have a. You know, hopefully you have a good day, and we're glad to have you here with us. And we want to again thank our sponsors, the uh, Minnesota Soybean Research Promotion Council and the Minnesota Corn Research Promotion Council.